I don't know if you recall, perhaps when you were a child uh, eating a Sunday supper, perhaps, and you get a piece of roast beef that's maybe not the best quality, and you chew it and chew it and chew it and chew it, and the longer you chew it, the larger it becomes. And at some point, you don't know if you can quite swallow it down or if there was a discreet way to get rid of it. Um, I feel somewhat about the sermon the way about that piece of roast beef. I have overworked it. I have agonized. I have pounded my head against a text that is complex. It is deep. It is difficult. My goal, every preacher, I guess, has goals. My goal when I open the Word of God to you is that somehow through a failed, fallen, broken vessel, that in spite of that, God will overcome the limitations of a man and use me in spite of me. I never know how a message is used. It's a marvel and a mystery for a preacher to spend your life with nosing books and trying to write words that are appealing and appetizing, not just academic. It is an endless challenge, and sometimes you work it so hard, you go, what am I doing to these poor people? For years, I actually had a piece of paper taped on a prior pulpit. What are you trying to do to these people? And each week it rolls around. It's a lavish, extraordinary, unbelievable privilege to open a Bible without persecution or fear and say, this is what God says. But it is a terrifying thing as well. And this passage today is complicated. I need you to think a little more than in an average message. I will not entertain you today. I won't even attempt to. This is tough sledding. It's deep theology. Notes will help you. Looking at a Bible will help you a lot. And if you are just looking at me and not looking at the text, this is going to be hard to follow. Most Christians never wade into what we're going to look at today. And even fewer ever embrace it. If you have a Bible, would you open to Ephesians chapter 1? We will also have it on the screen, or if you have the booklet study guide we have used, and I will ask you to stand one more time, and we'll read this passage aloud together. It is a page of the Word of God. It is a little complex to read, so we'll take our time. Let's read it well. We are to give attention, Scripture tells us, to the public reading of Scripture. Let's read together. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know the hope is of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You can be seated. Now let's try and get our bearings on what Paul's doing in this passage. Paul has explained that we have been richly blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
we unpacked those, we looked at them, we reviewed them, we're elected, we're adopted, we're redeemed, we are forgiven, we are sealed, and these are spiritual blessings that you have. You don't have to pray for these, you don't have to ask for them, you don't need more of them. You currently possess, if you are a believer in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, Paul's moving us in this prayer so that you will know what that means. And the way he articulates it, he's going to pray that the eyes of our heart will be enlightened, that we'll know these things. Or to say it very simply, he wants you and me to know God intimately. To understand the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are foundational theology before we run to application or how we apply or what we do or our behavior. The academics of this are a bit difficult, but it is God's word. And if you will go here, you will, you will deepen your walk with Christ. You will mature in the faith. And I would argue categorically, very few Christians ever comprehend what we're going to talk about this morning. The ones that come up close to it fail to execute. To understand this passage is to begin a new growth level in your spiritual life, not hype, not some positive mental attitude. This is a power that we do not come in contact with very often because we don't understand how to live the Christian life very well. Now, what Paul's going to say to us are three things he wants us to know, three things he wants us to understand. They're in the text, which is why I want your Bible open. The first is the hope of his calling. The second one is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It's a complicated sentence. We'll unpack it. The riches of his glory in the inheritance of his saints. And lastly, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us. The hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of his power toward us. Let's look at the first one, the hope of his calling. Look again at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know, here it is, the hope of his calling. We tend to think of hope as this energy, this positive thing. I hope I can do this. I hope this will work out. I hope I'll close this deal. I hope I'll get this sale. I hope my child will graduate. Sort of like a Zen energy. In Scripture, hope is essentially confidence in God. It's not hope in hope. It's hope in the person, in the Word of God, in the work of God. In the Old Testament, for example, the Old Testament saint believed that even though things didn't work out in life the way we liked all the time, that they had a hope in God, a confidence in God, that the righteous will prevail. It did not mean God would deliver them in the immediate or in the near future or maybe in their lifetime, but their hope laid in the fact that they believed God at his word. When we come to the New Testament, we have Paul pairing it here, the hope of his calling Calling, kaleo is a word, it, it simply means to call out. But the way Paul uses it in the New Testament is almost always means the call of salvation. Paul is saying he wants you and me to know God intimately by understanding the hope of his calling, to have confidence that he called you. Calling here is often paired with the doctrine of election. We looked at that as we began this part of Ephesians, that he chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless in him in love. He predestined us to be his. Forget the timing and the sequence of all that. 
the issues, the, the concepts are he's chosen us and he's called us. And at some point in our life, we responded to that call. Maybe as a child, maybe a teenager, maybe as an adult, perhaps you've not yet responded to that call. But the call of God goes out and he calls us. And at some point we embrace, we respond by faith, we believe in, we put our trust in what Christ has done for us in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. There's no way we were good enough to get to God, but God was good enough to come to us. And by belief, by trust, by faith, we have the gift of salvation. Paul is saying, I want you to know the eyes of your heart to be enlightened, that center of you to be enlightened, that you will know the hope of your calling. Confidence that you're saved. Confident that because you trusted in what Christ has done, not what you do. Confidence in that you understand he died for your sins. You don't have to pay for them yourself. Confidence that he came back from the dead. Confidence that all that it means that you know that you know that you know that you know the hope of your calling. This is where he begins. Don't miss this. He prays that the eyes of our heart will be enlightened, that we will know the hope of our calling. And it's a good place to pause and say, if you never come to that place to know Christ, to trust in Christ and Christ alone, that offer goes to everyone. By faith, trust, believing in what he did for you, in your place, on your behalf, instead of you. He died for your sins. And by trust, by faith, by belief in him, he grants you a free gift called eternal life. He forgives you of your sins. He welcomes you into a relationship with him that begins an amazing experience. To know the hope of your calling. This is where he begins. If you want to know God intimately, the first thing Paul wants you and me to understand is, do you have confidence do you have the hope of his calling in your life? Secondly, to know God intimately, we must understand, verse 18, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, I read about nine English translations of this verse. It is a very difficult phrase for the English mind to grasp. I'll give you a paraphrase. It's my paraphrase. It's not really good, but I think it'll help. It's a complicated sentence. I would say it this way. The riches of God's glorious inheritance, which are the saints. The riches of God's glorious inheritance, which are the saints. Now remember, saints means believers. Lloyd began the series with that. We've talked about saints are living. Paul's writing the saints who are at Ephesus when this letter is delivered. This isn't some uh, thing that's branded on a person afterwards. In fact, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you can call yourself Saint Stephen, Saint Clay, Saint Michael. I like that, Saint Michael. You can call yourself Saint because you are a called chosen one, a set apart one. He is saying that the saints are God's inheritance. Now, in verse 10, he said that we inherit salvation. Here he's saying he wants you and me to know God intimately, and part of that equation means I've got to know that this body of believers called the saints belong to God. We're his inheritance. When my father was uh, getting older, before, before he died, he started distributing things. There were some things he, he left us, sort of speak, inheritance. But um, he started sending my brother and me trinkets, odds and ends. None of them are worth anything monetarily. I have a small cigar box in my uh, chest of drawers. And it's all the stuff my dad sent me uh, the last year or so before he passed away. 
And uh, um, I doubt anything in that box cost more than a dollar. Now, there's a, there is a broken uh, retirement watch that probably is worth a dollar, but uh, there's, there's just no value to them monetarily. But there's a pen knife in there, and that pen knife, a very small folding two-blade knife, uh, he always had a pen knife in his pocket. He grew up with a father who was a farmer and always had a pocket knife. And when he had his Sunday pen knife that he took to church on Sunday, and this may well have been my grandfather's Sunday pen knife. I know it belonged to my grandfather. And so he gave it to me. And it's, it is worn by the decades of being in my grandfather and my dad's pockets with loose change. It is so smooth, I'm afraid to carry it, much less bring it here to show you lest I would lose it. I doubt it cost a dollar when it was purchased. And to me, in some strange way, it has great value because I knew it was my grandfather's hand in pocket. I knew it was my dad's pocket, in his pocket all of his life. He always had a knife in his pocket. Now, it, it's worth nothing, but it means something to me. You are God's inheritance. He looks at you as what he paid for through the work of his son to be what he claims to be his inheritance in his glorious relationship with him. It's a mind bender. To know God intimately, Paul's saying here, you need to understand the saints, the believers, are God's glorious inheritance. Let's back up. We have every blessing in the spiritual blessings in the personal work of Christ. If you want to know what that means and know God intimately, first of all, Paul says, you have to understand the hope of your calling, that he calls you, confidence in the fact that you trusted in Christ and Christ alone. Secondly, to know that you are the riches of his glory in his inheritance, this body of saints. Thirdly, Paul goes to the subject of power. Look at verse 19. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? We'll stop there for just a second. We've talked about the hope of our calling, which was in the past. We've looked at the riches of his glory in the inheritance of the saints, which is future. And now Paul moves, interestingly, to the present. It's an interesting organization of Paul's prayer. We've got this repository, if you will, of every spiritual blessing for you and I to know God intimately, first you need to know the hope of your calling that was in the past. Know what you know. Secondly, you need to know about your future, that you are an inheritance to God. What awaits you in the future? And now we might say he digresses to talk about the present, and he spends more time here than on the prior two phrases. He writes about this surpassing greatness. Look how he explains it. Four key words of his power toward us who believe, these are in accordance with the working, second word, of the strength, third, of his might. Let's take these a little bit at a time. Let's understand what the surpassing greatness of power is. And by the way, this is available to you. The power we're going to look at right now is the punch of this section. And this power is available to the believer, which is why I begin with the statement, very few ever embrace this. The power we're going to look at is available to you and me. Now, the four terms, power, working, strength, might. I won't go into a lot of detail on them because they're somewhat synonymous. But the first word, power, is the word dunamis. And, of course, any preacher who reads a commentary says, oh, dynamite, the power of dynamite. Well, that's explosive power. 
That's disruptive power. That's violent power. And never in the scripture do we see that type of dunamis, dunamis used. In fact, what we see are military references, armies, the host of angels present this power. Think about the magnitude when you see troops in, in order, in perfect formation, aligned, marching, or at it, or standing and uh, waiting for orders. Behind them, perhaps, all, all types of military uh, apparatus and weaponry. It's an amazing force of power to look at. That's what dunamis means. Second word, working, is energia. <laughs> we bring it into English, energy. You think of this word, when you plug an appliance into the wall, the action of that electrical current makes that appliance function. Apart from being plugged in, there's no active energy to make the thing work. It's just a machine. Thirdly, we have might. And here, it more than likely refers to humans and angels, but there seems to be the ability to acquire it for a human. And... Uh, Strength, I passed over. Strength is supernatural power. Always in the New Testament, supernatural power. Now, to take these four words together, listen to Dr. Honer. The goal of knowing God intimately is that we might know the great power that is directed toward us. He is saying this power is available to believers. Now, we take those four terms, and Paul is, I believe, he's, he's adding word upon word to explain this to our finite minds, because there's no simple way to explain it where we would get it. If you were to ever uh, see a D9 or a D12 Caterpillar bulldozer, you would see a massive piece of equipment that has a lot of power. Let's envision it painted yellow, international orange safety stickers on the side of it. It's sitting, it's not turned on, it's not running, it's just sitting there. It's huge. It's mostly what you see is metal and these gigantic tires or tracks, depending on how it's rigged. When it starts, it's using diesel and electrical current, and when they hit, it black billow smoke makes a horrible, awful noise as it begins to run, and as the smoke starts to clear, the engine roars, and it's deafening. But it's just sitting there, doing nothing but making noise. An operator gets in, and magically, with innumerable levers at his hands and on his feet, he can move that thing, making it look like driving a car. He can lift the bucket up with just a one hydraulic pull of a lever, and he can begin to move it. The hydraulic pressure comes from the energy of that diesel rig that's pumping hydraulic oil through those lines under pressure. Then it's driving along. So what? A car does that, but then it comes up to a boulder that's almost larger than it. And by angling the bucket and leverage and the force of it, he can pick that boulder up, lift it up into the bucket, and move it to another location. The energy, the strength, the power, the might have all come together. If it's just parking and idling, it looks impressive and sounds kind of intimidating. But when you see it work, picking up something that no human, no groups of human could move, you see the strength of that. Perhaps not the best illustration, but an idea of the surpassing greatness of God's power. We don't have a clue. We want, Paul wants you and me to know the eyes of our heart enlightened, in this one, the surpassing greatness of God's power. Now, watch how he explains this power that I remind you is available to you and me. Look at verse 20. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him 
at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Let's keep the whole argument together. We have all blessings imaginable in Christ. You've got those. To know God intimately, Paul is arguing, first of all, grasp the certain hope you have, the hope of your calling. Secondly, to know God intimately, you need to understand the, 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 the excuse me, understand Um, understand the riches that you are to him. You are the inheritance to God. You You are his glorious inheritance in the heavenlies. And thirdly, he wants us to know the surpassing power. And now we're explaining that power in our present circumstance in more detail. We might say now he's going to give us some evidence of it or a demonstration of that power beyond just talking about power, strength, working, and might. Let's look at what he says in verse 23. Verse 20 which he gave, God gave, and brought about in Christ. The first confirmation, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand. The power that God the Father uses in the person and work of of Christ, who is also the God-man and the Spirit, to raise him from the dead is one thing. People have been raised before in the Old Testament and New. Lazarus, of course, is raised from the dead, but everyone else dies again. I often argue Lazarus had a bad deal. Because he was raised back to life only to die again. Nice object lesson for us. Kind of stinks for him. Jesus is the only one who dies and is raised never to die again. But that's just the first part of the power. The second is that he seated him at the right hand. Now the right hand in scripture imagery is the hand of strength. We think of lefties and righties, but in imagery it's being the strong right hand of God. Most men in battle would use a sword from their right hand. Of course, the Benjamites were lefties, but the right hand was the strength of God imagery. As a friend of mine says, the right hand is the strength of God, but his left hand ain't so bad either. Uh, But God's might is depicted in his right hand, and Christ is seated at his right hand. Does this mean his job done, he's resting, he's chilling in a lounge chair or a lazy boy? No, seated is a position of authority. He's accomplished the work God gave him, and now... He has the right to sit on the throne of David forever. That seated position on the throne was prophesied in the Old Testament that a Messiah would come and sit on that throne forever. Kingdoms come, kingdoms fall. Nations rise, nations go away. If you're a student of history, when you study Rome, the fact that Rome fell is a marvel to historians to this day. Uh, Percentage and... You know, it's a little bit hard to apples and apples. Look at America's power and might compared to Rome. I would argue Rome was 10 times more powerful than America in its day. We're digging up archaeology around the globe that Herod the Great built. Still there. The power of Rome could be overrun in such a short span of time. Nations rise, nations fall. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. America will one day go away. It will. Maybe not in our lifetime, but they all do. It'll change dramatically. He's seated at the right hand of God eternally. He is the king, the only sovereign. No one can challenge his power. And being seated in that position illustrates this is the power of God. Not just to raise a man from the dead and keep him alive eternally, but to put him at the right hand of God where Christ resides in this image. He overcame death. He was resurrected, he ascended into heaven, and he is now the messianic ruler on the throne. 
Notice he says far above, another comprehensive expression. This is above all realms. Now the words rule, authority, power, and dominion are a great study. I won't digress. But when Paul uses these terms, frankly, the New Testament, these, these words, dominions and authorities and principalities he uses, are words that describe a spiritual realm we can't see. Sometimes you hear the term spiritual warfare. I shy away from that word because of a lot of baggage. But there is a spiritual warfare going on that the human eye cannot see. There are legions of elect and evil angels that are at war in ways we'll never understand. And those are what Paul means by principalities, rulers, and authorities. What he says here is Christ is above that. Christ's power is not only resurrected. Christ's power is not only eternally living. Christ's power is never to die again. Christ's power is seated at the right hand of God. Christ's power is above all these realms. He's saying with all these adjectives and expressions, he possesses all authority. He has a position surpassing everyone, everything, even things we cannot see. Verse 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. The first confirmation was when he raised him from the dead and positioned him, seated him on the throne at the right hand. The second confirmation, he puts all things in subjection under his feet. The image here is one of humiliation. In Joshua, there's a small passage about when Joshua defeated the Amorite kings. He pulled in his chiefs and he had them put their feet on the necks of the Amorite kings. What a humiliating position to bring the king in and put your foot on his neck and put his face in the ground. We defeated you. We are now your leaders. You are in submission to us. Christ if, if you will, has his foot on all authority and power. He has crushed the world, the spiritual realm, the demonic realm, what we can and cannot see, and everything is in sub subjection to him. Listen to the author of Hebrews who cobbles together a, no a number of passages to say this. But once testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You've made him a, for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjection to, all, to him are all things. He left nothing that is not subject to him. Strong visual imagery. When Christ returns, um, depending on your millennial view, uh, I, I think to witness Christ's second coming would be uh, the high point of a life. When he returns to establish his literal thousand-year millennial reign on this earth, to see that will be beyond chilling. No one will be able to stop him. No one will be able to interfere. No one will thwart his plan. He will reign literally for a thousand years before he begins the eschatological reign. He will be the king of kings, the lord of lords. There will be no one to contest it. All kingdoms and power will fail. When Christ refer, returns, there'll be no doubt who's king, and there'll be no doubt who is the sovereign. The third confirmation, he has given him as head over all. Here he speaks primarily of the church, and what it means to be head of the church, the body. When Christ is the head of his church, we think of imagery. We'll see two more times, by the way, in Ephesians, where Christ is talked about as the head of the church. And here we have a reference both to creation and to the church. Because Christ, from Colossians, Paul also wrote, was at creation. When we think about how God made the world and 
created everything. We often have these images of you know Steven Spielberg manifesting things. Uh, in my sanctified imagination, Christ, fully God, fully man, is forming these animals out of dirt. He's forming Adam out of dirt. He is literally creating many of these things. Things now certainly he could have done them with a word, but it says he made him in his image, and so there's a personalization to him. He's overall creation. Now we're told he's over his church. The two realms from the beginning of time as humans count it to the establishment of his church, which was the culmination. The fullness is a question. What does he mean by this? Dr. Honer again writes, fullness seems to point to God's moral excellence, perfection, and power. So the church is his body, and the church is being filled by the ones that belong to him, bringing thus the fullness of all in all. So we have an expansive prayer. It's a lot of heady doctrine. It's a lot of deep theology. We go back to possessing all spiritual blessings. Paul is now praying that we will know God intimately. That you will know the hope of his calling. The confidence of what it meant when you trusted in Christ and Christ alone. You responded to that call. Secondly, the future, the riches of his inheritance. That you and I have a place in his heaven, in his kingdom. And we are somehow in ways that are hard to comprehend. We're his inheritance. And thirdly, that the present power of God that raised Christ from the dead, that seated him on the throne, that enabled him to be the one sovereign ruler of all over angels, principalities, to be the sovereign eternal God over creation in the church, that he has that power to reign, and you and I have that same power. Now, if this is true, why do we live so impotently? This is why I began, very few Christians ever study this, even fewer ever embrace it. To say it very simply, why don't we change? If you and I have a problem, a frustration, something that plagues us, anxiety, depression, addiction, fears, same-sex attraction, whatever it is, if we have these things, that consumes us 24-7. We can't change. We've tried, whatever it is. And we can't stop it. We can't change it. The flesh always wins. Every one of us in this room, if we were transparent and honest, would say, I struggle with X all the time. I struggle with Y all the time. I wake up in the middle of the night, and the first thing that crowds out my mind and heart is this anxiety. I worry constantly about this or that. I have trouble sexually all the time. It plagues me 24-7. I'm a power control person. I've got to be in control. I worry, I fear for my children. I worry about my marriage, my husband, my wife. I worry for this or that or the other. I'm consumed by insatiable desires for substances, for whatever it is. And we can't, we can't use any of that. All that controls us. Where's the power to stop it? And if that's what Paul's saying, why haven't people stopped it? Is there such a thing as sinless perfection? Can we stop it because of this power? If this power raised Christ from the dead and did all that we've just talked about, why can't it help me stop doing X? Now, this is my theory, and this is why I think it's so hard. Because you and I look at our problem, it's ever before us. It is the same sex attraction, the substance, the alcohol, the, the drugs, whatever it is, our avarice, our greed, our control, our fear, our worry, 
uh, parents who worry about children insatiably. We have diseases and pain, chronic pain and cancer and heart disease. And, and all the time, and this is the thing we wake up with and we focus on it all the time and it consumes our attention, our energies, our emotion, our time. We read about it, we study it, and we, and we pray God fix this thing, God what? And we, we wear ourselves out maybe in good ways asking God to help us. And all the while, and that thing never changes. Let me suggest what Paul's saying here is you need to be intimate with God and less worried about this. The eyes of your heart to be enlightened so that you will know the hope of your calling, that he loves you immeasurably, that you're part of his inheritance. You are his saint. You belong to him. And the same power that resurrected his son and placed him in a position of sovereign authority, which no one can contest, you and I have access to. But we live over here. Is it as simple as turning and diverting the energy of whatever this thing is over to? If you and I spent as much energy knowing God as we did with this thing, how would life be different? To me, the so what of this is that somehow I've got to turn my energy and worry and fear and consumption, addiction, whatever I want to call it, away from that thing and run to my Savior to know Him intimately. You know, children get this early on. A child, when they are afraid of something, they run to a parent. Now, granted, we've got to put exceptions in dysfunctional homes. Let's don't go there right now. Just stay with me. If a child is afraid of a dog, they run to the closest adult and climb the tree very quickly. I remember vividly, cemented in my mind, my first daughter, I don't know how old she was, and we were feeding geese by a pond, and these geese got very aggressive, like they can, and started going after her with the bread or crackers in her hand. And that little, whatever she was, three-year-old child, in a matter of an second, crawled all the way up on my shoulders. You see, she didn't try to face down a problem that was bigger than her. She got to a high place advantage, believing that her father could protect her from that animal. And I could. It was easy for me. I'm a lot bigger than that thing. I'm not afraid of it. I know how to deal with it. One swift kick and it all stops. <laughs> I saved my daughter. I was the hero as is your God. You can't tackle that on your own. It'll eat you alive. It'll go after your fingers. It'll go after your soul. It'll erode your heart. The disease of sin will etch you into oblivion. So what do you do? Is it as simple as saying our intimacy with God is corollary to our ability to face our problems in life. That's why I argue very few Christians ever get here. Even fewer embrace it. What is Paul going to say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We don't understand how bad off we were. We've just been told how much power we have available. Then he's going to tell us, this is how bad off you are and how bad off you were. And that's why it's so important to get this before we look into the how-tos. 
Let me pray for you. Father, it is a deep passage, and our minds run many directions. But to know that you love us so much, far beyond human description, we can't find language to begin to explain the love you have for us. What you've accomplished for us in the person and work of Christ is unfathomable. We are the richest people on the planet, and we live as spiritual beggars and paupers. Help us to draw close to you. Help us to be longing for your word more than entertainment, more than distraction, more than the Internet, our device in our hand or pocket, more than technology, more than friends, more than money, more than whatever. Create in us an insatiable longing to know you. And by your kindness and your word and your spirit, help us to grow, to know you more, to know you deeply, to know you intimately, that we would call you Father. We pray in a risen Savior's name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.